picked up a handbook that was open on the pew and it was open to that song and it had been on my mind throughout this week. Uh, what a beautiful hymn. This morning I'd like us to consider the topic of stewardship and steward is not a word that we use that often uh, but even in today's terminology a steward is someone who has been tasked with the responsibilities of ownership but does not possess the rights to ownership itself. That is, they are tasked with the care of something that someone else owns. It's a particularly pertinent topic in Scripture because if you read throughout the Gospels, you'll see that word steward and the word stewardship occur again and again and again. Because Christ wanted to emphasize to those pressing into his kingdom that they are stewards of something which they do not truly own. Now, this is a reality that we often don't stop to consider. But, but the fact is, Christ owns everything that we see around us and that we're blessed with in our lives. And this is a relatively simple concept, but if something good is in your life, that is a gift from God. We are granted with blessings that we do not own. We are granted with items in our lives that we do not own, that we are tasked with the care of. And so Jesus, he uses the analogy of the steward over and over again to illustrate to his disciples that, hey, you have been tasked with responsibilities of ownership. I have gifted you things that I own, that I created, that are mine, that you are tasked with the care of. Examine the entirety of Scripture and what you will see again and again is the Lord, he proclaims himself as the ultimate owner of all. He claims that I own the cattle on a thousand hills. The earth is mine and the fullness thereof. I'm the creator of all and all is sustained by my hand. And when he calls his disciples stewards, he's emphasizing to them, everything about you is a gift for me. I own it. It is mine. It is to my glory, but I have blessed you with the responsibilities of caring for these things, whatever that may be, whether that's your breath, your life in general, whether it's the kingdom of God, whether it's the church, whether it's our families, whether it's any other type of good blessing that manifests itself in our lives, that blessing ultimately is God's. Then we are tasked with the responsibility of caring for it. And so consequently, the Lord entitles his children as stewards. Let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 20 this morning, where Paul says to the Corinthian church, And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, 
that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and ye are Christ, and Christ is God's. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. So Paul, he immediately dives to the root of our inability to comprehend the fact that God owns all of creation. When we look at things that we have created with our own hands, when we look at things that it seems that we have accomplished, our natural inclination is to credit ourselves for that particular, for that particular accomplishment. When we have done something noteworthy, when we have done something that we consider to be noteworthy, our natural reaction is to credit ourselves because human beings are naturally self-absorbed. That's the truth of Scripture. We're naturally prideful. We're not naturally meek. We're not naturally humble. We're not naturally outward focused. We're not actually caring to the needs of others beyond the needs of ourselves. No, we have to make a conscious spiritual effort to not be self-absorbed, to not be prideful, but to practice meekness in our interactions in the kingdom of God with each other. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's the first thing that he addresses in this passage. He says, I know that you in the church are often prideful and you often think you're wiser than you really are. And you often think that you are the ones that sustain the church. You are the ones that have caused it to grow. And it's because of Paul and Cephas and Apollos and these other ministers that were traveling around the globe at that time that the church has spread like wildfire through the area in which the Corinthian church was established. But Paul says, no, wait. You may be inclined to think that this has been your responsibility and your task and you've accomplished it on your own. But no, this is the fruit of the Lord's water. The Lord has created this church. The Lord has blessed this church. The Lord has blessed his ministers to travel throughout the globe proclaiming the gospel. And he has blessed the seed of the gospel to grow in the hearts of born-again children of God until they were convicted to be baptized, convicted to change their lifestyles, and convicted to press into the church and the kingdom of God. He said, all things are yours, though. There And reigning there, perhaps we should question whether or not what we are observing is part of God's kingdom. I hope every manifest church on this globe is a part of God's kingdom. I hope God's ruling and reigning there. But if the church is divided and dissension and people are torn apart in pride and arrogance, often we have to ask ourselves, is this church placed at the center of the kingdom of God? Does God rule and reign in this church? And Paul's asking that question to the church. Does Christ rule and reign in the Corinthian church? Does the Corinthian church acknowledge that God is the reason that this church even exists to begin with and the reason that it is sustained? But in Christ, because we're in Christ, we've been granted this privilege, the honor of being blessed uh, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, as one writer phrases it. Paul says, we are stewards. He entitles himself as a steward, first of all, and then he, he generalizes stewardship and says, anyone who's a bearer of the mysteries of God is a steward. I assure you today, in one context or another, we're all stewards this morning. We have tasked ourselves with the responsibility of a steward simply by being here this morning. And yes, it's a grave responsibility, but one of the fantastic parts about that is when we have accepted our responsibility as a steward, we are able to reap all the blessings of ownership. All the wealth that we are imparted in Christ is available to us. Now, we've only received a dispensation of that here in this life. There's only a part of that we can experience in our flawed and mortal bodies, but the full blessings that are available to those that are in Christ, those are yet to come. That is our ultimate focus. We're able to experience a small portion of the blessings of being one of God's stewards here on earth. 
But I assure you there will come a time where we won't just be partial stewards. We will be there with Christ in all perfection, ready to rejoice in his grace for all eternity. That's coming. It hasn't happened yet. But even in this time, with the small portion of our inheritance we've received, we're allowed to partake of this kingdom that we've been tasked with the responsibility of caring for. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. We understand what we have this morning. Any good gift and every perfect gift that's from above. That gift is meant to be stewarded by those who receive it. Again, whatever gift it may be, reflect and think about what the Lord perhaps has blessed you with in your life. That's something that is to be stewarded and cared for. And in a steward, it is required that a man be found faithful. What does this mean? Well, Jesus uses a number of parables to illustrate the nature of of a faithful and watchful steward. Let's look in Luke, the 12th chapter, in the 35th verse. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And you yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so. Blessed are those servants. And this know that if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not." Who is then that faithful and wise steward who the Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Are you sensing the the familiar language in this passage? Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season. Blessed is that servant and whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. So the Lord is tasking his stewards with the responsibility of treating their blessings responsibly. Whatever those may be, if that's in the kingdom of God, he expects us to behave as if we expected the imminent coming of a victorious and glorified Savior to be in the next second. He expects us to behave as if the sky is about to split open, it will be our last moment on earth, and the Lord is coming back in the next moment to take His children home to be with Him for all eternity. And I submit to you this morning, that's the moment that we're in. That is the moment that we're in. Examine Scripture of the Lord. He could return at any moment. And the Lord tasks his children with living in an understanding of that reality. Are we living is that the Lord might return in the next imminent moment. He tasks us with living as if the Lord was coming as a thief. What does that mean? Well, I assure you today for the Lord's children, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to be a fearful thing. It may be glorious. It may be majestic. It's going to be earth shattering. Yes, But the Lord's coming is a time for rejoicing when his children understand what it means. Now, it will be a time of fear for those who have denied the name of the Lord and have no inclination and no spiritual ability in their hearts to speak after him. But for the Lord's children, that's going to be a time in which we can rejoice. But we can ask ourselves the question this morning, if we knew that a thief was going to break into our house within the next hour, what would we do? What would we do? We would prepare for that thief's coming. The first thing that you might do is you would go around and you would lock all your doors and windows. You would go around and you would hide all your belongings. Some of you would probably prepare to defend your home. That's certainly what I would do, uh, especially here in the United States. We're preparing for that thief. And the Lord says just in the same way that you would be conscious of the thief's return and you would go to your house and you would prepare to prevent that thief from taking your belongings. I want you to prepare and labor and work diligently in the kingdom of God to prepare 
for my coming. Live as if the Lord was coming in the next imminent moment. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. You know, he says, act as if the bridegroom was about to come from the wet, back from the wedding. Now, this is a tradition that we're not as familiar with in today's weddings. But he says in verse 36, And ye yourselves be like unto men that wait for their Lord when he shall return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. So the man's servants are waiting for him at home. They're waiting for him to return from this celebration. I assure you, the Lord, he has returned to heaven on the right hand of the Father for a celebration like the world has never seen, and we will only be able to witness one day. He returned victorious. He returned having accomplished the will of the Father. And that's the vision that we're seeing here now. The Lord, he has gone to a celebration at the right hand of the Father. The angels, they were flying about day and night, constantly without ceasing, proclaiming his glory. The son has returned in victory, clothed in majesty, having accomplished the will of the father. And yet for us, he will return from that. And he asks us to be prepared as a manservants would be prepared when he returns from the wedding. Have your loins girt about or be dressed and ready to receive the father and your lights burning. What this Lord doesn't want to return to when the wedding is over. When the celebration of Christ's finished work in heaven is finished. And the Lord once again splits the sky to sound of the trumpet and descends to earth to rescue his children into heaven. What he doesn't want to find is sleeping servants in a dark house. When there is a Lord returning from a wedding, returning from a celebration and all of his finery and all of his glory, and he returns back to rest for the night, what does he expect his servants to be doing? They're not in bed. The lights in the house aren't dark. The doors and windows aren't locked. He returns. The servants are waiting outside of the door, fully dressed, awaiting his coming with all the lights in the house burning. Because that house is about the master. That house is about a return, the return of the Lord. That house is awaiting his imminent coming. So the Lord says, servants in the kingdom of God, be like these men who stood out in front of the house, fully clothed with the lights in the house burning, waiting for their Lord to return from the wedding. Because blessed are those servants, in verse 37, whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. So what does the Lord say will happen when he returns or he comes down to visit the church in real time when the church gathers together in worship and he sends the presence of his Holy Spirit to dine with them in the church. How will he find the church? Will the church be standing outside, figuratively speaking, waiting for him to come with the lights in the house on, ready to prepare him food and watch him to sit down and dine? Because if they are, the Lord says exactly what will happen when he comes and he finds the servants watching. He shall gird himself, or he shall take himself upon the attitude of service, and he will prepare them meat and will sit down and they will dine. See, when the Lord comes to visit the church, as he does, we hope and pray and beg on it every, every Sunday, every week, whenever we're gathered together, whenever two or three are gathered together in the name of the Lord, we're asking the Lord to visit. I hope and pray. When he comes and his servants are awaiting him, they're prepared for his presence. He begins to serve them. See, we're supposed to come into the house of God as an offering before the Lord. We are supposed to come in an attitude of service. We are the servants. But when the Lord comes and he visits the church and he sees his children serving him, prepared for service, what does he do? He serves, he serves them. Because when we come in to serve the Lord and the blessing of God comes upon the house of God and we're strengthened, what has just happened? Well, the Lord, he has girded himself. He has sat down and he has served us food. 
We originally came with the intention and purity of heart to try to provide him with some sort of flawed food in our mortal bodies and all of our imperfections to worship him in spirit and in truth. But what has he done? Instead of sitting on the pew, instead of returning into the house and sitting down and letting us just continue to serve him as he deserves, he has taken a plate. He has taken a plate of food. He has girded himself and he has promised that if he arrives and we're ready for his coming, he will serve us. What a gracious savior that we have. When we could come before the Lord in imperfection and in all of our flaws and broken spirits and try to serve him some sort of food that he would gird himself and serve us instead. In verse 38, and if he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch and find them so blessed are those servants. What the Lord, He may not come in the first watch or the earliest portion of the night. What if He comes in the second? Or what if He comes in the third? He says, Even more so blessed are those servants who I'm still fine watching in the latest and most weary portions of the night. The Lord bestows an extra blessing, an extraordinarily blessing, upon those that often come crawling into the house of God at the darkest hours of the night. Figuratively speaking, when you are most downtrodden, most discouraged, and despairing perhaps more than you have, when you come before the Lord with the attitude of a servant, he, ex he bestows an even more extraordinary blessing on those people. You may be waiting for the Lord in the first watch. It may be one of those days when you come in, you're excited to be in the house of the Lord. You're excited to be among saints of, of fellow faith and fellowship with them in spirit and truth. You're excited to be able to sing praises to the Lord. You're excited to bow your head in, in moments and pray to the Lord that he would bless the service. You're excited to be able to sit there and listen to the preaching. You're excited to be able to get up after the preaching's over and interact with those around you in love and in truth. Then the second watch, there may be a time in which you're a little bit tired. You know, 10.30 seemed to come very, very early. Or that call from, from a fellow child of God may seem to have come at an inopportune time. Or maybe the third watch where you're conflicted with the thoughts of your hypocrisy and sin and you come into the church and there's a million things in your mind. Sometimes that's the third watch of the night. But the Lord, he promises us, regardless of what watch of the night it may be, regardless of how tired we may become, when we come before the Lord prepared to serve with our loins girded about and our lights burning, he is ready to bestow an extra blessing of strength and encouragement to those that are there. That's the promise of our Savior. And this know, once again, that if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Again, be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. The Lord is prepared to visit his children in their lives at the times when they think he is furthest away, when you're in a specific moment at which the Lord seems to be the furthest away that he's ever been, that his presence is removed far from you, David cries out about this in so many of the Psalms. And the question that he asks over and over again in today's vernacular is, where are you, Lord? Where have you gone? Why are you so far from me? The Lord has promised it's in those moments when the Lord seems furthest away that he will often come to visit his servants to see whether or not their lights are burning, to see whether or not their loins are girded about and they are waiting patiently for the coming of their Savior. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even to all? So Peter's asking, saying, Lord, are you speaking directly to the disciples? Or are you... Are, are you speaking to all that might hear this parable? And the Lord says, who then is that faithful and wise steward? Who is the steward this morning? Are we all stewards? Is it just a few of us? 
Is it just a select few that are tasked with this responsibility? No, the faithful and wise steward is the one whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. And there's this incredible message that follows this passage that tells us of what the faithful steward shall experience if they're faithful in their stewardship. He says in verse 44, Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him a ruler over all that he hath. But and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and he shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, and to eat and drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers." And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. The Lord says the ones who reaps the blessings of ownership, the faithful steward who's tasked with the responsibilities of kingdom and the resources of the kingdom of God, the Lord has promised that he will reap the benefits of those. Those may not be what we would often would like them to be. Again, sometimes it would be wonderful if the blessings of the kingdom of God were a stable career, a nice house, a high income, a flawless family, and multiple nice cars. But the Lord hasn't promised that those are the blessings of His kingdom. There may be a circumstance in which the Lord chooses to bless one of His faithful servants with those things, but I will go ahead and tell you that is not the pattern of Scripture. Because the deepest and richest blessings of the kingdom of God are not material in nature. When the Lord tells His disciples in Matthew chapter 5 that blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He's not, going to bless them. He's not necessarily going to bless them with global dominion. He wasn't telling Peter that, Peter, at the end of your life, when you have served me faithfully, and as tradition tells us, you're hung upside down on a cross. I'm going to bless you with all the material riches, power, wealth, and affluence of this world. That was not what he was telling Peter. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit all of the spiritual blessings of my kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they will enjoy a rich and deep fellowship with the Savior that others will not. Blessed are the meek, for when they cast themselves and their cares upon the Lord, He will soon lift them up. That's what He's telling the disciples. But and He tells these servants, these stewards in this passage, when you're faithful in My kingdom, those blessings are at your disposal. He promised the Israelites, in really a, a figurative way, the same thing. He told them, He gave them a land. Flowing with milk and honey, did he not? He delivered them out of the land of Egypt. He delivered them from death and slavery and ignorance of the law and of the riches of, of his mercy that he bestowed upon them throughout their time as his chosen nation. He brought them through all sorts of trials. He brought them through the wilderness. He rescued them from the hand of the Egyptian army. He performs all of these miraculous miracles in this name, feeding them from the sky, manna from heaven, bringing them water from rocks. And he brings them to this land and he says, you have been gifted with this land flowing with milk and honey. When you care for it, you will reap the blessings of it. When you follow me and you serve me in the way that I've asked you to, you will reap the blessings of this land. But he says, if you don't, the heathen are going to come, come in armies and they will take your land from you. They're going to take your fields and they'll take your children and you won't have this miraculous blessing that I blessed you with anymore. And the message of the, the New Testament is in some ways the same because the Lord tells us, he says, I'm going to bless the kingdom of God and I'm going to give it to those who will take care of it. If you have a plot of land, maybe you have resources that you're going to task someone else with the responsibility of caring for. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's an actual plot of land. You know, maybe 
It's your car and you take it to the mechanic shop and you say, for a short time, I'm going to grant you the responsibility of caring for this vehicle. I want you to service it. I want you to clean it. I want you to detail the inside. I want you to change the oil. I want you to check the tire pressures. I want you to look over the motor and make sure everything's running smoothly. And then I'm going to come. I'm going to take it because it's mine. Who do you want to trust the responsibility of that car to? The bad mechanic? The one that doesn't care? The one that doesn't follow through on his instructions? Maybe he takes the form and he writes out what he's done. And when, a matter of fact, he hasn't taken care of any of it, would you like to entrust your vehicle and your belongings to the mechanic that's going to take their job very seriously and do exactly what you ask them to do. If you have financial resources that you're going to trust to an investor, are you going to give it to the scatterbrained investor that's going to lose all of your money in the stock market tomorrow? Are you going to give it to the investor that's faithful with your money? I'd say all of us want the faithful, consistent, and honest mechanic. All of us want the investor that's going to take our resources and treat them wisely and grow them into something greater than we could imagine. The Lord does exactly the same thing. He looks at his children. He says, the kingdom belongs to whoever treats it faithfully. The kingdom of God is going to exist throughout the world in one way or form, the church specifically, until the end of time. Christ promises that to Peter. It says, Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The mightiest force of evil, Satan and all of his minions, and the greatest punishment, eternal punishment for wickedness is not going to prevail against the church. The Lord has promised that it will be here. The question that we often have to ask ourselves, will it be in this area? Because we have treated it faithfully. Will it be in our lives as disciples of Christ and stewards of Christ, because we treated it faithfully. The Lord loves gifting his kingdom and the blessings of his kingdom to those that treat it faithfully. The Lord's not interested in depriving his children of the blessings of his fellowship, but he tasks the care of his kingdom to those who treat it most faithfully. Again, he looks at his children and he sees the honest one, the faithful one, the one that seeks out the riches of the kingdom as an ultimate priority above all else. And he says, that is the one to whom I will task the responsibility of stewardship of my kingdom. Let's look at some parables that will illustrate this principle. Matthew chapter 25. We'll read this parable of the talents of a set of servants who were each gifted resources that had the responsibility to care for them wisely before their master returned. In verse 14 of Matthew chapter 25, we read, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. So this king has decided that he's going to make a trip. He's going to travel into a far country. And he's going to task his servants with the responsibility of caring for his belongings. Again, what we've been discussing already this morning. The Lord, he's departed into what is to us as of now a country that we have not experienced. This is a country from which we are estranged. It will be our home one day. But for now, the Lord, he has gone somewhere far away from us. And in that time, he has tasked us with responsibilities and with resources that we are to care for in as faithful of a way as we can. Again, for the kingdom of heaven is as this man traveling into a far country, he calls a service together and he delivers unto them his goods. The passage that we just read is a direct example of the Lord tasking us with the responsibility of caring for his belongings. He's talking to his disciples and he says to Peter, Peter, Blessed is the disciple whom when the Lord returns will be found watching. And then Peter says, well, is this, is this only applicable to me and to the disciples? And the Lord says, no, this responsibility is tasked to whoever will care for the kingdom of God in a faithful manner. It's tasked to the faithful steward. And in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 25, and unto one, unto one servant, 
He gave five talents to another two and to another one to every man according to his several abilities and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoned with them. So what have we seen in this parable thus far? We have these three servants that are each tasked with caring for a certain amount of the Lord's resources. They're each tasked with caring for an individual thing. One's given five talents, one's given two, and the other servant's given, given one. You know, and that's because we're each tasked with different things in the kingdom of God. Some of us may be tasked with the responsibility of song leading. And when they're not here, we sorely miss them and wish that they were. Because they do an incredible job with the gift that the Lord has blessed them with. We're so thankful for, for men that are able to do that. Some of us may be tasked with the responsibility of encouragement. Paul in Romans chapter 12 entitles that both directly and indirectly as a spiritual gift. Those of us that are tasked with that responsibility may simply go about the church, finding those that are faithful in their work and encouraging them in what they do. You may be tasked with the gift of prophecy and wisdom. Some of you are substantially older than I am. You've seen a lot of life. And I've realized that many of you have the gift of wisdom and prophecy to look into the future of those around, them, of those around you and tell them about the consequences or blessings of the activities that they're engaged in in their lives. You have the ability to examine the lives of those around you and tell them what the Word of God says about the ways that they're spending their time. That is a miraculous gift. That is a talent. You may be tasked with the gift and responsibility of teaching. Brother Josh is tasked with the responsibility as pastor of this church of teaching his congregation, teaching the members of this church and encouraging them in the Lord from the pulpit. That is the gift that we have the responsibility to encourage him in and strengthen him in. And he comes every Sunday and he fulfills that responsibility by preaching to you all here at Vestavia. That's a gift of teaching that we read about in Romans chapter 12. That's a different talent. But regardless, we're all the recipients of these talents this morning. I'd say overall, it's fairly evident what people's different talents are. Sometimes those are revealed the moment that you begin to interact with someone. When you meet them, you shake their hand, they introduce themselves, and you realize this person has been gift, gifted with the mastery and blessing of encouragement. When I meet them, when I interact with them, and I look in their eyes and they smile back at me, I'm lifted up in my spirit. Maybe they're get, get, um, tasked with the gift of preaching. Maybe they're tasked with the gift of song leading. Again, maybe they're tasked with the gift of giving. But it remains the same. We've all been given talents. And these servants have as well. They've all been given these resources of the kingdom that are to be used wisely. But two of the servants treat their resources and their gifts far more wisely than the third. You notice they each do the same thing with their gifts. The master comes back and he seeks out those servants and he looks at the talents that he's given them. And regardless of whether one has received five or one has received two, they've doubled the amount that the Lord has given them. He comes back and they present the talents to their Lord and they say, we have blessed you with a 200% return. We're going to bless you with the two talents that you originally gave us. And here's two more that I've made in all of my investments and projects in your absence. See, that's the attitude of the servant whom the Lord returns to his house to find with their loins girded and their lights burning. When the Lord returns and he sees this profitable servant with the two extra talents that the servants made from what the Lord had given him, or he returns to his house and he sees the servants waiting out in full clothing with the light burning, or when he returns and he finds a servant that he had given five talents to with ten in his hands, 
He judges them as a profitable servant. He looks upon that with pleasure. When we see children of God using their talents, their spiritual gifts, their spiritual resources to expand and grow the kingdom of God, the Lord looks upon that with favor. He truly does. And again, as we read earlier, He's promised to come down with those profitable servants and reap the blessings that they saw in the kingdom of God with them. But what does this third servant do? Well, he doesn't take the one talent that he's been given and increase it into two talents, as he would have done if he'd followed the example of the two prior servants. He takes it, and what does he do? He digs a hole in the ground, and he buries the talent in the dirt. And so the Lord comes back to him, the traveling nobleman, as, it's, as he's called in Luke, returns and he asks the final servant, Servant, what have you done with your talent? And what does the servant say? In verse 24, he says, Lord, I knew thee that thou wert a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid. And when it hid thy talent in the earth, lo, thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put thy money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received my own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What has this unfaithful and unprofitable servant done that the Lord condemns so harshly? Well, he's taken his talent and he's buried it in the dirt. It's the same example that we see in Matthew chapter 5. When there's a man, where there, each child of God is blessed with a light. Specifically a candle. And the Lord challenges them not to hide it under the shadow of a bushel basket. That is to say, when there is a light that spreads guidance and direction to all around, why would we take a basket and place it on top of that candle? Why would we put out the lights of a city that's supposed to be set on a hill and guide travelers on their way? Let's look in Matthew chapter 5 and read about that specific um, illustration. Beginning in verse 14 in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a light cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So once again, Jesus, he's exhorting his servants. Servants, don't take your talent and bury it in a hole in the ground. Don't take the candle that you've been blessed with and hide that light from everyone that is around you. Rather, take that candle and place it upon a stand in the middle of the room that would cast light to all those that are nearby. And the Lord, he says to the servant that has buried his talent in the earth, servant, you could have taken my money to the exchangers. You could have given the talent to someone else. And at the very least, when I came back, I would have received my talent with a little bit of interest. He said, but rather, you took it and you buried it in the earth. He says, because you have dealt with my talent so unprofitably, I'm going to take it and I'm going to give it to the servant that has ten. Let's never be found in the situation where we've been gifted with a talent. And when the Lord comes down to visit his church, he sees that we've taken it and we've buried it in the earth. Not only is that an inefficient use of the Lord's blessings, it's an inefficient use of something that could be an incredible blessing to us. Notice what the Lord says in verse 29. For unto everyone that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. So the Lord, he looked at the servant and he says, servant, if you had been given something and you had used it wisely, I would not hesitate 
to bless you with an even greater degree of abundance than you could have imagined. But you took it and you buried it in the earth. Why? Because the servant was afraid at what might happen if he had decided to use his talent. You know, the world will discourage us when we exercise our spiritual gifts. Perhaps when you move out into the workplace tomorrow, perhaps you'll return to school, perhaps you'll return to your other responsibilities, and there are going to be many, many people that will look upon manifest spiritual gifts with unpleasure. But that should, the fear of what might happen if those talents are exhibited to those around us, if the light of the candle is placed upon a candlestick, should never prevent us from trying to double and increase the blessings that the Lord has already imparted to us. Because he tells the servant, he tells him that because of his inability and because of his lack of responsibility with his talent, he's going to be cast outside of the kingdom of God and into this darkness um, that we read about. You know, if you delve into this verse, you look at verses throughout the New Testament which say similar things. Praise God, this isn't talking about an outer darkness of eternity. You know, we read that similar language, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, the outer darkness of the kingdom. That's not talking about eternal hell. That's talking about the kingdom of God that's revealed to us in time. Because the Lord wants all of His children to be in His church, rejoicing in the best usage of the gifts that He is, has in His grace and mercy imparted to them. As we begin to draw to a close in the next few minutes, what have we discovered this morning about stewardship? We've discovered that we're all tasked with the responsibility of stewards. We are all stewards. You may still be in the process of discovering the specific resources and blessings that the Lord has laid to your charge, but I assure you today that all of His disciples are stewards. They're all stewards of a dispensation of the perfected inheritance that they'll receive in glory. We're all tasked with that responsibility. The Lord rewards stewards which care wisely for what He's entrusted to them. The Lord does not reward stewards who treat their blessings casually. The Lord does not reward stewards who don't exam examine the Word of God to see how the Lord would want them to use the gifts that He has blessed them with. Why does He do that? Well, first, none of us are deserving of the kingdom of God to begin with. None of us are deserving of any of the blessings of God's grace. And second of all, the Lord is going to entrust the kingdom of God to those who will use it best, who seek out the kingdom of God fervently, who pour their time and their energy, their resources into what He's blessed them with so that when He returns to visit His church, when He returns, whether it says the thief in the night at the ending of the world when all the elements are melted with a fervent heat, or whether he visits his church here in time, or whether he visits your home or wherever the kingdom of God is revealed to you, does he find his servants using their gifts in a profitable manner? Because he rewards that. He says, when you have been gifted with gifts and you use them with abundance and with responsibility and with intention, in my grace, I'm going to reward you with more abundance and more blessings and more gifts. What does the servant who doubles his talents from five to ten receive? Well, he receives another talent. He receives a talent that the other servant refused to use profitably because of his fear. So he takes the resources of the Lord, he doubles them, and yet on top of that, when the Lord returns and finds him laboring diligently in the kingdom, yet he receives even more. That's the graciousness of God in the kingdom. I hope that as we go throughout this week, as we go throughout the rest of our day, 
we would each strive to determine and locate and identify the blessings that we have been gifted with in this life and use them as effectively as possible in the kingdom of God. And I tell you this morning, if you're struggling to find what your gifts may be, what your talents may be, seek the Lord in that matter, and also come talk to me. For those of you that I know well, I'll be able to identify some gifts in your life that you may not have recognized thus far. For those of you who don't, that's a great excuse for us to grow to know each other better. Those gifts may be hidden uh, deep, deep within our hearts, but as born-again children of God, I believe we all have them. Whether it's faith delivered to us in the new birth, all born-again children of God are blessed with that. That is a gift. It's a gift from God. It's a fruit of the Spirit. We're told, although it may be something very small, Although it may be faith is the grain of a mustard seed, it has the ability to grow into a great and sprawling tree that the world marvels at. It may not be a tree of material wealth. It may not be a tree of power and affluence, but contained within that tree are the blessings of the earth as the Lord has made them available for his children. Play that has been beneficial to you this morning. We'll stand and sing a song if I'm at this time. Let's sing at the first and the last of number 202. Number 202. I'm as we stand. Number 202. Oh, Oh! Uh -huh. 